0: Hi again everyone. So we have spent some time in Peter's, he, he wants the pulpit sister, come on, we're grooming them young in this church. Um, so welcome. Those of you who slipped, slipped in a, a little after the initial welcome, great to have you. Honestly, uh, we're just a community on an adventure of growing in our knowledge of Jesus, appropriating that into the life that he's called us to, we believe there's a transcendent destiny on every one of us, and we want to help groom you towards that end. Whatever God has for you, we want to kind of boot camp you into that space. And uh, this evening is one of those cool moments that honestly I love, um, and that is I'm co teaching with someone for the first time. Um, we're in the book of 1 Peter. Peter is a, an incredible letter. Uh, Courtney, do you want to situate yourself so we can have a smooth transition? You know, like we practiced? Uh, not. Uh, come on, get yourself up here, girl. You'll be great. So 1 Peter is a fabulous letter. You can just feel his father's heart. Uh, it seems like Paul might have died by then been executed for his faith. And so it's possible that that fatherly mantle rests on Peter, who had walked with the Lord, but now seems to carry an added sense of responsibility for the well-being of the churches. The second thing that immediately grabs us in this book is the fact that it was written to those in the dispersion. In other words, he's not writing to those who grew up in Costa Mesa, still live here and go to church here. He is writing to the scattered, the dispersed men and women. And we spent much time on that in the first week, sufficient to say the exiles and the foreigners. I was praying for us this this morning. And um, you know, it's a unique thing. Meryl and I were just in South Africa a few weeks ago, and uh, that's the easiest I can understand the tension of exile and foreigner. In other words, when I go back to South Africa, it, it's familiar, but it's not really home anymore. But when we here, and we've been here 25 years, in the same way, we feel it's home, but not really home. You know, when I open my mouth, people say, oh, where are you from, Australia? You know, no. England, England, no. Um, New Zealand? Keep going south, baby. Keep going south. And there is this curious thing that we belong nowhere really. We're not really South African anymore. We're not really American. And it's this dual space that we live in. Uh, As one uh, theologian called it, we are resident aliens. And part of our big challenge as believers is that we are at home down here but not really something inside of you at the point of your rebirth was ignited with the idea that there is an eternity awaiting you and me and it isn't get saved that free ticket i said yes to jesus at a passion conference no no it is this ongoing journey of the gospel and so peter writes as a father to those who feel in between spaces i don't fully belong here I don't fully belong there. I am a Jesus follower and always feel a little lonely, a little disconnected with culture, a little disorientated with life around me. Now, tonight's chapter or portion of the scripture is an exquisite piece. If I was to give it a title, I would give it a title around the great virtues of the scripture. It's like Peter took all the beautiful ideas of a life in Christ A life living in the kingdom. And he squishes them into about, I'm going to say, 15 verses. And so it's a complicated passage to try to teach 10 minutes and 20 minutes. And so we have to handpick little moments in the text to conversate around. And uh, what Courtney has for you is exquisite. I've read her notes a few times over. But allow the Spirit of God to quicken something in you. Allow the Spirit of God to teach you to speak to you. We are certain not, not here to entertain. We are here to impart something of the God life that he has given us. My love, why don't you give a pray for Courtney? Now, Courtney texted me today. I said, how are you doing? You're good. And she said, absolutely. And in her notes, she thanks me and Tyler. Tyler prepped her. I gave her the opportunity, but actually thanked Meryl for putting it in my ear that she should preach. Now, I don't know how true it is, but I'm happy to accept that Meryl Diane, my one and only wife, is the cause, Courtney, of your trauma over the last few weeks. So would you extend your hand towards Courtney, and Meryl
1: will pray. Thank you. Beautiful lady. What a privilege, God, that you shared your son, and then you shared this incredible word with us, that you would impart to us knowledge, wisdom, insight, revelation, through the preaching of your word. And I thank you for Courtney Lord. I thank you for this beautiful daughter of yours that she knows you. She lives a life that is committed to you and to your purposes. And I want to pray Holy Spirit right now. You would just calm Courtney's inner person, inner soul, and you would just let those rivers of living water, the life of Christ, would you let that flow out as she speaks. May we be open um Hearted to your word tonight. May our ears be ready and hungry to hear you, God. Speak. We are listening. We we are hungry for you. Amen.
2: Thanks <clears throat> Hi guys.
1: Hi. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yes. Yep. I
2: told my sister I felt like Britney Spears, circa 2001, <laughs> with a little headset, um, which. Yes, I did want to start by thanking Chris and Tyler and Meryl for the invitation to learn alongside of them in this gift of teaching. And Chris did an incredible intro and just catching us up to speed and where we've been over our first Peter series. And so today we're continuing on in first, is there an echo? Closer to my mouth. That's scary. Okay, is that better? Is that a little bit better? Yes. Okay, perfect. So today, we're continuing on in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, verses 22, and we will keep building upon this message of hope and hardships and who we really are and how to live in the midst of it all. So we'll start by just reading through the text. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, and I'm actually reading in the New King James Version my beloved Bible I've had for years and years. So starting First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. So, I'm just going to quickly pray too. Father, I just want to thank you for this gift of your word. I want to thank you for the gift of getting to be here together and allow it to marinate our minds and our souls. I want to thank you for the gift of your presence and that we get to be with you. And we get to become like you. And, Holy Spirit, I want to invite you to do what only you can do. Amen. Have you guys. Ever heard of the belief tree? Anyone heard of this analogy? It was first introduced to me several years ago, and it's something that impacted me so deeply. It has truly been something that I have gone back to time and time again, and that I want to share with you today. So, if you think of a fruit tree, which being from Michigan originally, one of the things I'm obsessed with about California is that you can have an avocado tree, a lime tree, a persimmon tree, and a pomegranate tree literally all in your backyard at the same time. In Michigan, we like grew up with pine trees and that was it. So while there are so many parts to a tree, the belief tree really only focuses on two aspects, the roots of the tree and the fruit of the tree. And obviously, with a tree, it's the roots that bring nourishment for there to be healthy, vibrant, life-giving fruit. And would we all agree that it is the solid root system that impacts the state of the fruit and not the other way around? And so it is with our roots and our fruit in our lives. So this essentially is the belief tree analogy. For healthy fruit to overflow from our lives and to be tasted and experienced by those around us, this unseen root system is what matters most. And what is this unseen root system? It's our beliefs. And what we believe truly dictates what we do. True? So here's a very simple, silly example. But let's say you have a friend invite you to brunch tomorrow morning. You're going to set your alarm so you show up on time. You're going to not make yourself food before you show up. You're going to make sure that you get there when your date is set, or if you're like me, you'll be fashionably late. But you're gonna show up expecting to eat good food, good food with a good friend. Now on the flip side, if you don't trust your friend or if you think they're just being sarcastic or flippant in their invitation, you might make other plans and you might make yourself breakfast instead. So, while this is a silly example, it speaks to the fact that what we believe really does influence our behavior. But all too often, behavior modification is the approach to transformation, when in reality, it's reestablishing our beliefs and realigning our roots that will lead to a life of healthy fruit. So I want us to keep this in mind as we move through 1 Peter. And we're going to unpack three super simple points, especially since I'm going to try to keep this within 10 minutes. And although it may seem simple, sometimes it's the most simplistic that can be the most profound, which I also just love that Tyler led us in this stripped back sort of worship because I feel like that's kind of what I'm doing. Just kind of stripping back to these three super simple aspects that I feel like God that Peter is communicating to his readers and God is wanting to communicate to us today. So as I started reading through this string of verses, there was one phrase that was repeatedly sticking out to me. And it brings us to our first point, which is do good. So I'm just going to pull this phrase out from a few verses. In verse 12, it says, by your good works which they observe. In verse 14, for the praise of those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, in verse 20, but when you do good and suffer. So what does this do good look like in this context? And what fruit is Peter speaking to? So let's just work our way through these verses and what he pulls out. He's speaking about abstaining from fleshly lusts having honorable conduct, submitting ourselves in all circumstances, honoring and loving everyone, fearing God, enduring grief, and even suffering wrongfully. And as we've learned throughout this series so far, that this letter is in the context of suffering— Peter's recipients were Jewish and Gentile Christians, as Chris mentioned, and Peter also calls them sojourners and pilgrims, and they're surrounded by hardship and persecution and evil and injustice, not fitting this cultural mold, living as foreigners in a home that's not theirs. Talk about a tough spot to wake up every single day and still do good. And the purpose that Peter comes back to over and over again in his appeal to do good is that others, a.k.a. the Gentiles and foolish men, may observe their works and glorify God. As one commentary put it that I read, he said, Peter knew that those who never read the Bible will read our lives. That's the point of fruit, isn't it? for others to notice its beauty, but ultimately to nourish empty stomachs and empty souls. But during seasons of suffering, it can be all too easy and tempting to turn back to the ways of the world, to give in and to grow weary of doing good. So how can we continue to show up and do good and create this kind of fruit in our lives, when we're heavy with despair, or feeling the heat of the fiery furnace. I want us to think back to that belief tree. The root system is everything. I heard a wise woman share these words a few weeks back, which I feel like paints the perfect picture of Peter's heart and his letter to the church and God's heart for his children, for each of us. We were taught, this is the quote, we were taught the practice of faith before we were taught the posture of faith. That wise woman is our very own Dana Dooley, who sadly is not here today. Um, But I feel like that quote just speaks so perfectly. And when we prioritize this posture of faith, the practice or the action or the fruit or they're doing good, whatever you want to call it, No matter the circumstances or even the consequences, this is what we can expect to take root. Another quote I read, I loved, that also put it so clearly is, fruit isn't achieved by working, but is birthed by abiding. So I want to take us back to where we began in verse 11. In my translation, the first four simple words Beloved, I beg you, which I feel like also speaks so much to what Chris shared about looking at this through the lens of a father heart. And I feel like there's so much intimacy and passion and emotion and appeal in this introduction to this section. Beloved, I beg you. And not too long ago, I actually had a friend give me a card, and on the envelope, she wrote the word, beloved, and I've seen this word a billion times, which maybe some of you have too. This time, rather than one word staring back at me on the envelope, there were two words that I noticed. Be loved. And this is our second point, and where I feel Peter's appeal of do good flows from. Be loved. Peter is pleading for these pilgrims to live before the world as the beloved. Beloved. Friends, before we can do good, we have to be loved. And if you haven't noticed yet, we're working backwards down this belief tree. For a good fruit to grow in our lives, especially when it feels like our world is fully falling apart around us, it starts here. It starts with identity. It starts with who we believe ourselves to be. Because those that know they are deeply loved, live differently. They don't need to pursue false forms of love, like the fleshly lust that war against the soul as Peter pleased to them to abstain from. They are free from fear. They don't desire to conform to the culture of the age. They have nothing to prove. They're secure in their identity. And that same love they have received overflows to others and experienced by those around them and continuing to build on this identity of being loved, Peter goes on to remind them that they are pilgrims, they are sojourners, they are temporary residents. Their master is not their flesh, they're bringing different beliefs and a different way of living into this world. And although the context of time and place and people and persecution looks different than it does for us today, We share this same eternal identity and reality with Peter's readers. We are also called to live differently. We are called to live like Jesus. So bringing this text full circle, we're going to move all the way to the last verse, second to last verse, um, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. This is where we land on our third and final point, follow his steps. And as sojourners and pilgrims, this world is completely unknown territory, which takes follow his steps to a whole new level. We are called to walk how he walked, honor as he honored, fear God as he feared God, love as he loved, and even suffer as he suffered. The person of Jesus Christ is our guide. He is our roadmap. But would you follow a guide you didn't fully trust? To follow one's steps down a potentially treacherous path that you've never taken before, you must be so close and so connected to that person, trusting every step they take along with trusting their heart's intention. I feel God whispering to our hearts today, stay close, sojourners, stay close. At home group one night, Stu shared the simple yet powerful picture that I wanted to share with you, and it's perfectly in alignment with following the footsteps of Jesus and who our guide truly is. If God is leading us, if he's going before us and we're following in his footsteps, he's dealing with everything before we even get there. He's clearing the way. He's our first line of defense. He's guiding our steps. He's our shepherd and our savior. With him before us on the path ahead, we have nothing to fear in the valley of the shadow of death or even in suffering. You guys, this is who we're following. And he wants to be known by you. Because along with the belief about your identity, who you believe Jesus to be impacts every piece of fruit in your life. Today, I want to leave you with these two questions to reflect on your root system, the beliefs of your tree. I hear God asking each one of us, Who are you, and who am I? It's here in the being loved, in the abiding, in the following his footsteps, our beliefs begin to realign. They begin to take root, and they hold us still, even in the suffering and the uncertain and swirling winds of the world. And it creates fruit that others will taste, and ultimately be transformed by Jesus. So a quick pray to end us. Father, I just want to thank you for who you are. You are so worthy of being known. You are so worthy of giving glory to. You are so gracious and good to love us so deeply and dearly. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to walk in step with you so others may observe and experience the goodness that is you. We love you. Amen. Isn't
0: that wonderful? Come on, give her a round of applause. Well done. done. Thank you. I get so excited by these spaces, just to hear different voices, different stories, different lenses on the text. And Courtney, I thought you handled the text remarkably. To cover the amount of material you did in about 12 minutes is fabulous. You know, they say it it takes a whole lot longer to prepare a TED talk of 14 minutes than to prepare a lecture of 40 minutes. To create a succinctness about your message is way more difficult than the privilege of laboring through 40 minutes. I was also thinking while you were talking about following in his footsteps, Um, Have any of you been in the military? Just out of interest. One of the things that's interesting is doing uh, landmine drills. And in landmine drills, what they do is someone runs point and takes their knife and basically gently pushes into the soil immediately in front of them and creates a footprint that is safe then they will move on to their next foot and do exactly the same. And as the last foot lifts, the person behind them puts their feet exactly where that footprint is. It's safe. Sometimes in the heat of combat and the intensity that's projected, people get exhausted and there's more than a few occasions where people go, in South Africa we call it bossies, which means they kind of lose their normal reason and regional faculties, and just start running across the field. The intensity is such that they just, I can't do this anymore, and invariably they get blown up. And, And when I was listening to Courtney teach so delicately on this last point of following in his footsteps, the example he says, what a great exhortation Peter gives, and what a great visual for us to understand how we really are called to walk ...in the example that he's given us. Joe did a fabulous job, I'm told. I'm listening to the three messages that were preached while I was away. Um, but, but there is something spectacular about the, the identity that we have by being in Christ. I know it sounds so highly theological, but it skips the way we think. For well, some of you, think pessimistically or over-optimistically. I heard a fabulous statistic this week... of Americans think that they're above average. (laughs) 80% think they're above average. It's very interesting. Well, what's average then, isn't it? If everyone's outstanding, what is outstanding? And um, so here we have this incredible opportunity through the text To wrestle our way through these high virtues, the identity that you and I have transcends our minds, because our minds can be friends or foe. It transcends our feelings. Remember, modernity was started by the philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. Michel Foucault, the great postmodern or late modern philosopher, said, I feel, therefore I am. And it was a great study, I think I have the information right, of a student at Stanford who walked around campus saying, Hi, I feel like I'm a six-year-old Chinese girl. And people didn't know what to say because I feel, therefore I am. How can I tell him he's not a six-year-old Chinese girl? It's foolhardy to conceive that it's our mind and our emotions that shape our identity. Our identity is who I am in Christ. I am Imago Dei. I'm a beautiful person made in His image and likeness. And I'm becoming like Him in the fullness of time. I will be fully like Him. What an adventure that is. So I'm going to take just a few moments and walk our, ourselves through the final few verses. Um, I'm using the NIV. Can the lights go up just a tad? It's quite difficult to read the Bible. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Otherwise, I'll just make it up as I go. So from verse 21 through till the end, there is this beautiful introduction of, for to this you have been called. What is this? It's a life of suffering. Oh, there we go. That's fine. That's fine. Absolutely fine. For to this you have been called called it's an incredible invitation dear friends that we are called to a life of suffering have any of you read richard raw the catholic social anthropologist's writings on adam's return okay so basically what he did he's a as a theologian he's a heretic as a social anthropologist he's amazing so what he did was he went and studied the, the coming of age, the initiation of young men into adulthood, from boyhood into adulthood. And he found five things are incredibly similar, no matter whether you go to Africa or Asia or uh, the jungles of, Amer- of the Amazon. All of them carry the same five ideas. And this is what the initiation process, uh, thing goes through. The first thing that the, the young man is taught is that life is hard. The second is that you're not that important. The third is that your life is not about you. Fourth, you're not in control. And five, you're going to die. Isn't that great? This is not Christian. This is not lay your life down for Jesus stuff. This is every primitive society that takes young men, and it's different ages, but it's within that time frame of moving from boyhood into adulthood. And this story, I know in Africa they do that, the Kozo's people, they go and they go live in a hut and they, get, they eat hardly anything and they go through a circumcision with very raw instruments. Some of them die out of infection. But part of the same uh, Lessons that are taught to these young men is life is hard. John Mark says the counterculture or the culture that counters that truth says life is not hard, life must be easy. And so most of you have grown up in life must be easy. I am entitled to an easy life. Why? Who said? You are not that important. The counter is, you are a star. When T was finishing in middle school, they took school photographs, and um, we could, for an extra $5 or $10, could get the frame of his school picture, and do you know what the frame read? You are a star in your own galaxy. What is Gen Z being told? No, no, you are not that important, is what the the primitive cultures forge into their young men to make them young men. What is being taught into a postmodern world for young men is you are a star. What a tragedy when we suddenly wake up that I'm not a star at all. Life is not about you. What is the modern lie? Life is all about you. What you want to dress, what you want to eat, where you want to go, the job you want, how long you want to work, how much vacation you want, what you feel like you deserve, what you feel like you should earn? All of these are lies. But you and I, me less so, because I'm too dang old for that. But, but you, Gen Zs, millennials, you've been schooled in this. I'm quoting your prophets. You are not in control is what they teach these young men. What is the prevailing cultural lie? You can control everything. I am in control. I will only do what I want to do. You are going to die. Well, you can live forever. Now, what is my point here? I want to just introduce us to the idea that Peter calls us to, this is the life you are called to, a life of suffering. It's not historically strange to believe that. It is not spiritually strange to believe that. I see so many young believers get completely thrown when the message preached by seeker-sensitive messengers is that you come to Jesus and your marriage will be okay, it won't be. Life is going to be easy, it won't be. I'm going to get the job I dream of, you won't. They say, Chris, isn't this just dark and moody? Oh, absolutely not. It's flicking a different lens inside of our hearts. And it's that lens inside of our hearts where we will find joy. And joy is way more profound than happiness. Joy is far more compelling and sustainable than that. So, the invitation that Peter calls us to is to live a life of suffering because Jesus is the one who suffered first. It's hard, hey, to hear that. It's hard. I love what John Mark and John John Tyson are doing by putting their young their their, their sons into a three year primal pathway. On the night before their thirteenth birthday, their mom will take them out for a meal and say, I've spent thirteen years loving you, caring for you, nurturing you. Tonight is our final meal together in that relationship from tomorrow i hand you over to your father because your father needs to walk you through the primal pathway to becoming a man why are so many young men incapable of living these lives because they've been overmothered and underfathered why is it what is it 98% of prison inmates in america are men because they've never been brought through a process of initiation into a life like this I forget who it was who said, I think it could have been Richard Raw who said, in the absence of an intentional initiation process into manhood, young men will try to do it anyway. Instead of having a circumcision, they'll have a tattoo. Instead of living a life and being prepared for a life of danger, they will drive like crazy and do drugs to live on the edge because can someone tell me I'm becoming a man? Can someone tell me I'm becoming a man? It's a beautiful bag of truths that are tucked away in here somewhere. And I know I'm kind of pointing to the men this evening. That's just as I've studied it, as I've kind of prepped for this time but but there is something incredibly conclusive inside of us when we die to the lies under which we were raised you cannot just become anything you want to it's a lie you know i cannot become an american president because i'm born in south africa oh no cuz you can become anything you want to you set your heart to it. i can't i can't become a woman oh you can you can become trans no i cannot become a woman Because I cannot bear a child and I cannot nurse a child at my breast. I cannot become anything I want to become. And I'm seduced by the shadows of lies to believe something that is just fundamentally not true. In the trauma and pain of exile and sojourning, Peter says, this is what you've been called to do. And that is to suffer and to suffer well. Jesus set an example for us. And by the way, I don't like preaching this message because then I get tested too. You know what I mean? I'd rather preach, oh, you can be happy and go surfing and just be cool. I'd much rather preach that message. But it's just not true to the text. Because Jesus committed no sin. Now, we know from the old covenant that meant that he was an offering without defect. We, we know that. But but how many times have you and I been unfairly accused? What happens inside of you? When someone blames you for something that you haven't done or didn't do, don't you rage a little bit, even if you zip your lip? So it's almost like Peter is taking different moments in our lives and saying, look at your life. I hate being falsely accused. Jesus committed no sin. Do you get it? He called to live under false accusation. Just like Joseph, when Potiphar's wife accused him of sleeping with her or trying to. And God didn't come to his defense then. Oh, this Christian life is rich and beautiful, but it's not flippant. It's deep. Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was there deceit in his mouth. I was very moved by a man I met on the strip uh, this week. A man in his 70s. Had a hedge fund. Was worth millions and millions and millions and millions. He had a 44,000-acre ranch in eastern Oregon, I believe. Had his own plane, his own company. But what he thought he could get away with at his age was an addiction to pornography, was the fact that he solicited prostitutes, and he did redirected funds to that hidden secret lifestyle. And he negotiated, he, he argued with himself that no one will ever know as a Christian man with five kids and 20 grandkids, whatever. And one night he was arrested soliciting a prostitute. The next morning's New York Times, Singapore Straits, Times, I don't know how many newspapers, front page, so-and-so, president of this hedge fund, with, with billions arrested soliciting a prostitute his deceit was laid bare powerful story he said to me Chris my wife looked at me and she said I will love you and I will forgive you and he said God asked only one thing of me no more lies Not even an exaggeration of the truth. Not even a nuance that will lead us to believe something that isn't actually the true thing. Not say, well, there were 60, 70 people when there were 38. Tell no lies. Because lying is deception, and deception leads to destruction. Here is an invitation that Peter offers us to live a new life. A life of total transparency and complete honesty. Not only did Jesus accept the challenge of false accusation, but there was no deception found in him. He was reviled, yet he did not revile. He suffered, but he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is a very powerful line. I cannot read that without considering for myself. I've just got a bit of a club thing going on next to me. Here, <laughs> here is this highest of virtues. The highest of virtues that I can fully trust God that he, because he judges justly. So much energy is expended, dear friends, by us not being able to put our trust fully in the one who judges justly. And I say that as one of you. I have some great stories to tell and I have some really embarrassing stories to tell. Because I was butchered as a pastor. I had knives. I mean, I had... Two men walked up to me one day and said, we will destroy you. And they set about doing that. Long story. And I'm embarrassed to say I did not always trust God who judges justly. There were times I fought because I was right and they were wrong. I stood up for what I believed. I stood up because what they were telling was not true. I'm embarrassed to acknowledge that. So there's no sense of elitism in this comment. The only elitism is Jesus, who entrusted himself fully to the one who judges justly. Isn't that absolutely exquisite? Now, Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, says there are four modes of learning. And I won't go through more time, is not my friend. But the one that I really like, the third one he speaks of, is the issue of doubting. He says, doubting to those belongs to this journey of faith. And we work through it. It pulls us to discover more. Doubting in many evangelical circles is like almost an ultimate sin. It's not. It's, not. it's the honesty of our doubting that empowers us to live a life of faith. In fact, some of our highest theological convictions are born out of the knowledge or out of the wrestles of doubting that leads to knowledge. It's okay to doubt. It's part of your journey of learning. You are, and I will, doubt many things in this journey of faith. And it's okay because we will land with this conclusion, he who judges justly. He bore our sins. I won't be much longer. But this is so beautiful. He bore our sins. Remember that moment in, Ham- in uh, Macbeth? Where Lady Macbeth walks around, sleepwalking in her chamber, rubbing her hands for a quarter of an hour, lamenting, what? Will these hands now be clean? She can still smell blood. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. We all carry the stain on this little hand. And the only hope we have is not endless washing, but timeless surrender to the one who washes me white as. Snow. See, I, I don't really mind what your sin is tonight, really. I know there are social categorizations. This is a really bad sin. Don't talk about it. These are acceptable sins because everyone does. But from the perspective of the divine, that just isn't true. A simple reading of the Ten Commandments will tell us that adultery and honoring your father and mother are the same. The same. Speak ill of your dad and mom, Same. Might as well commit adultery, same sin. Same level, same biblical category of sin. And that's where this beautiful hope is. He has borne our sin. I love that. Like you, I am fully human. Like you, I, f- I don't say I fully sin, but I do sin. And there's nothing more compelling than coming into my Father's presence with blood-stained hands, just like all of you. Oh, God, I am in need of the blood of the lamb to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And the knowledge that he will do precisely that. We didn't bath for four days. Grime upon grime. Driving UTVs through the Grand Canyon, dust upon dust. I did remember to wash my hands twice. I know I was a wuss, but I did remember. Dirt upon dirt, sin upon sin. But there is the beauty of this text that Peter beats into our hearts as he suffered, as he bore our sins. So we can now embrace a life that we might die to sin. That we might die to sin. Dear friends, is it possible you might ask, Chris, that in this life I can be sinless? John Wesley preached that. I'm not so sure. But what I do believe is an ever unfolding life in which God washes my sins away and the level and regularity of my sin gets less and less and less as I am compelled by Him. When the sweet and precious name of Jesus is the highest, most majestic. Most creative and liberating voice and name of all names. So sin shrinks. You and I know that, don't we? When we push hard towards him, sin loses its appeal. That Netflix show that you like watching when no one's around, when you're in worship, you think, oh, jeez, I don't know why I ever watched that. That we might die to sin. You know what sin is? Sin is that which destroys us because it's authored by the great Satan, as Tamaki would say. It's authored by him to destroy us. Anything that we do that is authored by darkness will destroy us. That's just what will happen. And so our hope is not on our ability to be white knuckled and have the will not to sin, but it's the beauty of Jesus, closer than a friend following intimately in his footsteps. Always much more to say, but I, I close with this. You, was, you who were straying like sheep have now returned. There's an invitation tonight. Ty, if you can join us, there is an invitation tonight to come home. Come home. Don't stray. Straying leads to staining our hands, our hearts, our minds. We landed in Vegas. I'm sorry these are all stories, but they just have what's happened to me now. And uh, I've only been to Vegas once before, and I left within 24 hours. Meryl and I could not cope with the pain around us. Could not. We had friends who were Christians who said, oh, you've got to go to Vegas, man. You've got to." I could not. The smell and stain of sin. You have to have a special grace To represent Jesus in a very dark place. I'm sure they say that about us too. La La Land. (sighs) Come on, you've been straying. Come back to the shepherd. Come back to the overseer of your soul. It's a beautiful place. He who judges justly, wash you, cleanse you. Those little stained hands that Lady Macbeth said, Who can cleanse me? Nothing can, no perfume of Arabia can remove the stain of my sin. I started and I knew it was weighty. This is what we've been called to, a life of suffering. But we end beautifully. An invitation to the shepherd and the overseer. Would you stand with me, please? open your hands just in front of you don't go crazy we're on level ground here tonight jesus with the saints of old that peter was writing to who wrestled with the self-same things that we wrestle with all these thousands of years later we are on level ground not one person in this room would say i've not wrestled with doubts not one person in the room will say i've not wrestled with sin not one person in the room has not known what it's like to be closely to you and yet drift away and then feel the stain of my sinful decisions as we sing this final song together can can he come and wash you tonight, wash me nothing sweeter than that name that's above every other name